uh, Built Together, series we started last week in the book of Ephesians, where we're walking just chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Ephesians throughout the fall and probably even into the spring. And so if you're new or you're visiting or even joining with us online this morning, welcome. You're, you're here at the right time. All we did last week was really kind of set the stage, line things up and give a trajectory or a direction for where we're going to go in this study. A few kind of points of, of detail to note. The, the book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul, who is in prison, most likely, writing back to a church that, as we looked at last week in a, the book of Acts, chapters 18 through 20, Paul founded this church. He uh, kind of helped start this church by going into the synagogues and proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah and seeing Jews one to faith, but then also seeing the gospel kind of impact and infiltrate the, the, the culture at large, which we talked about last week in Ephesus was a, a very spiritually pagan culture, a culture built around the temple of Artemis where their, the marketplace and their economy was built upon pagan worship. And, and so Paul sees the gospel begin to grow there as Jew and Gentile are coming to faith and becoming a part of the church in Ephesus. And then we knew from the book of Acts that Paul comes back to Ephesus and prays over the elders and says, prepare yourself. Uh, days are coming when this is going to be really hard and there will be um, conflict and there will be uh, enemies of the gospel that will rise up even from within your own ranks. And Paul told them, I'm departing to go uh, back to, to Rome now to continue the gospel mission that's where he's arrested. That's where he's in prison. He's writing a letter back to this church. And we talked about it last week. The main heartbeat of this letter is to draw these, these two groups, Jew and Gentile, together to see that they are one in Christ. That by faith in Jesus, God has made a new humanity, made up of both Jew and Gentile, made up of every tribe, tongue, language, and nation that represents this new family of faith. And so Paul is beckoning them to be unified in this new identity. And as we talked about last week, one of the main points of the book of Ephesians is that in Christ, your activity flows from your identity. Who you are comes first, what you do comes second. And Paul says, if you are in Christ together, you will A, be unified, and then you will be in chapter four through six of the book of Ephesians, live in a very particular way. Your life will take a particular shape and a particular form, and the world will know that you belong to Jesus that way. So we jump in now in chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 14 this morning. Now you'll notice in your Bibles that it has regular sentences. It looks like a, a regular set of paragraphs. In the Greek language, there is no punctuation here. The Apostle Paul launches in with a, a, a statement of praise, 202 words in the Greek language, zero punctuation. If you could read in the original language, you would see that there's a, a cadence and, and a rhythm to it. It's as if uh, Paul is, is, is beckoning the church to feel something about the person of Jesus, to experience something about what it means to belong to him and to be found in him. It's, it's very emotive in, in the language. In the ancient world, this was a, a particular type of rhetoric. Aristotle called it, I think, or, oratorio per, perpetua. My, my Latin's terrible, but I think that's what he called it. it. It was a way of eliciting praise from people to, to get them to think and consider uh, particular things in, in an emotive way. So Paul gives us these, uh, these 11 verses, all one long run-on sentence, and we're going to take two weeks to break this down and to understand it. So if we don't cover everything today, come back next week. We'll, we'll be in the same spot. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, the apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. I was out a couple weeks ago. My wife and I went out west, and we got to do one of the things that we most love to do together, which is go hiking. And it's pretty... Um, kind of basic, just basic white people activity. From what I hear, you just go walk around in the woods, um, and that's what you do. You just do it for a long period of time. So we covered almost like 20 miles, I think, at altitude. The older I get, the harder this is on my body. My feet still hurt. It's been almost two weeks. And, you know, it's one thing, like if you walk up a hill, you know, just, you know, down the road out here, you walk up a hill, you're like, oh, I'm still in good shape. You walk up a hill at 8,000 feet, and I'm like, Give me a minute, honey. I just need a second. I did that about 50 times over the course of a couple miles. So, But we, one thing about hiking that I, I do love is the way that as you're gaining elevation and you're going up the side of a mountain, you have all these switchbacks. And it, the, it kind of, you know, you walk through different topographies, through, 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 different, um, through, through different things that you see, different scenes almost. Like you go through an aspen grove and then you may walk through a field and you climb a little bit more elevation and the trees change once again. But the payoff for me and the reason I love to hike is when you get above a timber line, you finally have sort of ascended or summited the side of a mountain and you get up to this place where you can see where you've been, that's, that's, that's it. That's the reason that you, you endure the struggle and the pain. When you get up to the top and you can look down and you have perspective, and it's sort of like, oh, I, I went through all that to get up here. Like that, That's significant. I feel pretty good about myself right now. I'm, I'm not as in as bad a shape as I thought. Now, I'm at the top of the mountain eating some peanut M&Ms, trying to get enough <laughs> juice back in the system to go back down. But I feel good for that moment when I can see all, all the things and experience the payoff. So... Why did I tell you that today? Uh, well, one, I hiked last week. You need to know that. I still got it. But two, that, that's sort of what Paul is doing here as he opens up the letter to the church in Ephesus. The book of Ephesians opens up with this exalted praise where Paul just begins talking and writing at, at a feverish pitch and level. Again, 200 words, no punctuation. 
we don't really have an equivalent of, of this in, in, in maybe our, our common language or, or oratory skills. If it's probably the closest corollary you would see in, to, to what Paul's doing here in the church today would be found in the black church, where uh, uh, one of the greatest gifts that the black church has given to, to modern Christianity is the black preacher finding a cadence and a rhythm with a word or an alliteration that continues to build upon it and build upon it until everyone is sort of in a frenzy and they're excited about what's happening. That's sort of what Paul's doing here. Maybe as Jay-Z would say, he's spitting bars. He's, he's just lining up these statements of praise that stack one on top of the other in order to elicit from the church this Unified experience where they feel something together. I think that if you would kind of survey this, even in English, you'll see pretty quickly that, that there's a repetitive phrase that comes up. I think it's 13 times, depending upon how you break it down. Paul says, in him, from him, or by him. That, that, that there is something we have in Christ that we share collectively, Jew and Gentile. Whatever background you come from this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, there is this one thread that is woven throughout this, this statement of praise that Paul gives to the church that binds us together. This is what we have in him. And Paul stands at the summit of salvation. He has climbed the mountain of God's saving grace, and he's telling you everything that has come before is currently going on and what will come into the future. He's looking back and giving you perspective on the experience of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. He starts from God's perspective. We are blessed in God the Father through the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And here's all the, the, the manifest blessings that we have in Him. So this week, I just want to do three things. I'm going to I'm going to look at the tense changes in, in the original language where the tense changes from what God did before you ever showed up. He chose us in him. Salvation past is the way we'll look at that. Salvation present, what we have in Jesus at this moment. We have in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins that God so graciously and, Paul's word, lavishly poured out on us in mercy. What Hannah was talking about in our confession, unending forgiveness in perpetuity. In order that, by verse, I think it is 11, he would unite all things in him. Salvation, future. This is where we're going, y'all. Things on heaven and things on earth. The inheritance that we have received in Jesus combining with the experience of our lived lives so that in heaven forever we are with him. Salvation past, he chose us in him. Salvation present, he is currently redeeming us, renewing us, forgiving us. Salvation future, he will one day unite all things in him. That's what we're looking at this morning. First off, salvation past. Look back again in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what does that mean? I don't really know. What is the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? There's tons of speculation. I read a lot of commentaries on that. We'll try to unpack some of that next week when we talk about why God saves us, because that's a piece of that puzzle. But what Paul says next is really important. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. 
Now, again, you may have caught it when we read it, but back down in verse 11, Paul uses that same word predestined again. And so he's giving a perspective of the salvation that if you're a believer in Jesus today, what you have in Christ that started before the world, before creation itself, God was working out a plan. In the past, he chose us in Christ. Now, I'm going I'm to kind of go off off the trail a little bit and talk for just a second about this idea about being chosen in Christ. Because whenever I, I read those words, and they're the words of the Bible, predestined, words of the Bible, I'm not making this stuff up, that's in there. One of two things, one of two groups tends to emerge whenever you start talking about things like predestination or election or being chosen in Christ. Two groups usually tend to emerge. The first group I would call the overly nervous group, and the other group is the overly excited group. There's, these two groups exist this morning right now. You may not fall on that spectrum. You may be somewhere in the happy middle. That's fine. But that group's here today where someone heard me say predestined and chosen. And they're like, oh, I don't know. That makes me nervous, preacher. And then someone else, you woke up, the frozen chosen. You've been sleeping through my sermons for months. And you're like, oh, he said election. Finally, a good message. My favorite thing. So I'm going to talk to those two groups this morning for just a second, okay? The nervous group. This idea of God choosing, God predestining, God electing, it sounds, it sounds at best unjust, and at worst, if you walk it out to its logical conclusion, as many often do, it makes God the author of evil itself. Now, I empathize with this group. The first five, six years I was a Christian, and I kind of was met head on with the overly eager group. I'll talk to you all in a minute with this idea of election and predestination, I used to get really nervous by this conversation. And there seems to be some measure of like logical conclusion. If you walk this stuff out, then we have no free will and God is just playing some game of duck, duck, damn that none of us understand. And that's and too bad for humanity. And some of the overly eager group even hears me say that this morning and they go, yeah, so what of it? You know, that's the problem. But, but I would just beckon you this morning, to, if it makes you nervous, if it makes you uneasy, let the scripture speak to you on its own terms. These words are in the Bible. And so this, the doctrine of election, the idea of God's foreordaining certain things to come to pass, that no one just invented that in the 16th century. It's in the scriptures. And so you got to wrestle with those words. And I would encourage you to wrestle with those words on their own terms. In other words, if you need to read a book that's anything longer than a page and a half about how predestined doesn't mean predestined, it's probably not wrestling with the term on its own terms. Wrestle with the words of Scripture in such a way so as to meet God with what He's given us by His Holy Spirit to speak to us. And I would just encourage you with that. I'm not going to press this very hard. I will say by the time we get to chapter 2, this, this Ephesians is one of the letters that changed my mind on God's preordained power and salvation because when you get to chapter 2 and Paul says, by nature, we were children of wrath, we were dead. Dead people don't tend to respond to things very well. So I'll leave it, I'll leave it at that. We'll get there in chapter 2. That's when I'll make you nervous again. But to the overly excited group, to those who hear me, again, mention election and you just perked up because this is your favorite thing to talk about. Um, we get it. You're smart, nerd. We get it. Like, and you figured it out, right? That's, there's a reason why, and in, in, in the groups that I've run with over the years, there's a reason why they call certain people cage-phase Calvinists. 
Some of y'all know what that means. They say it cage phase because the first couple years you discover this, you should be locked in a cage until you get over it a little bit because you're just kind of bludgeoning people with the things that you stumbled upon. And it makes everyone unhappy and no one's really excited about the gospel whenever someone's walking around making them feel dumb all the time. So if this morning I say super lapsarianism and you know what I mean, schedule a time with a counselor. You need to talk about your relationship with your father because that's what that's really about. Trust me, I know. To the overly excited group, I would just say when we talk about election, when we talk about predestination, you need to be careful about centering a doctrine that the New Testament doesn't center. This word Paul uses for predestined here is used five times in the New Testament. Four times Paul uses it. Twice it's used right here. The other two times is once in Romans and once in 1 Corinthians, and neither one of those times is it talking specifically to salvation. The only other time it's used by anyone other than Paul is in the book of Acts, and the writer of Acts is using it to talk about God's plan for all of time. So tap the brakes a little bit if this is the most important thing to you. In fact, let me just give you the words of of the the Protestant Pope of all Calvinists, R.C. Sproul, on this topic, right? This is what Sproul says about election. He says, there is a reason why the elect have been chosen to salvation, but the reason is to be found in God and not in them. In other words, God did not choose them because they qualified for the choice. Rather, he chose them because he was pleased to extend mercy to them. God is not obligated to save anybody to make any special act of grace, to draw anyone to himself. Think of it in this very personal way. If you're a believer, ask yourself candidly, why is it that you believe yet someone else does not? Do you harbor the idea that within your heart that the reason why you received Christ, why your neighbor rejected him, is because you were somehow more righteously disposed towards obeying the summons of the gospel than your neighbor? In other words, if you understand what election means or predestination means, if you you trust in that, believe in that, It should humble you to the core. If you really do believe that you come to this understanding, then it was by the will of God himself, then there's no way you can look at someone else and say, hey, man, get it together and figure this thing out. That's not what happened to you by your own definition of election. You were given that as a gift. So be humble with it. Okay, I'm done. That's the two groups. I've talked to you. Let me tell you what I think Paul's talking about here when he's talking about predestination and election. I think he's setting the people up for what is to come. Namely, they're, they're called to unity. They're, they're called to be one in Christ. And what he's telling them is that God is for you, but he's not about you. And that's a really important point, especially in our day and age. Because what tends, the reason why some folks get nervous when you hear about election or predestination is it sounds like God's not really for me. God's just for his glory. And he's for his glory. And he's for you. And those two things don't need to be pitted against one another. In love, Paul says, he predestined you to be adopted as sons. That qualifier, in love, is really significant. It means that God is for us, not against us, but he's not about us in the sense that he wants to center the self such that we try to understand how the world works by placing our plans, our agenda, our hopes, our ambitions at the forefront and telling God that's what he needs to get on board with. Predestination is meant to come alongside and say, no, we are subsumed into a larger cosmic plan when we trust Christ by faith. God is doing something in the world. God is up to something in us. God's love is motivating us, changing us. This is necessary for the only way a collection of dispossessed individuals can find unity is whenever we find that we're all subsumed into a larger cosmic salvation plan. 
that none of us got in on by our own merit, will, or intelligence. We got in on it because of grace. God is for us. He's just not about us in the sense of centering us. He's the center of the plan. He's the point. He's the goal. Jesus is the objective. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit to make that known in our hearts. So secondly, the point I think Paul's making here is that God is adopt, has adopted us. Look back again in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will. I heard a debate on this probably 20 years ago, and it was one of those debates where, you know, the, the, the non-Calvinist side was arguing for free will, the Calvinist side was arguing for the sovereignty of God, and it was like, this is going nowhere. And then the mediator steps up, and he says to the two groups that are sort of arguing about it on stage with a microphone, hey, what if instead of seeing salvation and seeing God's uh, doling out of justice in the, in, in the, on the issue of salvation, what if we see it rather instead of a criminal court, it's an adoption court? You following with me? Because so often we're like, is this fair? That's a criminal case. God's dropping the gavel. Someone's getting in. Someone's being excluded. Is this fair? Is this just? What if instead, what if instead we see this as God is the one determining who's adopted here? In the sense that everyone who got in was formerly an orphan, homeless, without hope. And what if we reframe the conversation as though salvation is an adoption court where we're all alone, we're all abandoned, we're all hopeless, but God drops the gavel and says, no, you're in the family. That changes everything. That makes us brothers and sisters. That gives us a family. That gives us a future. That gives us aspirations that are better than any ambition we could bring to the table because now we've been given a heavenly father who in love, he predestined us before the foundation of the world. He went into the orphanage and said, I want you. Then that makes us humble. That makes us generous. It makes us kind. It makes us tolerant of one another in a new miraculous way because if God hadn't done that, we have no chance. We're on the outside looking in. When Paul's talking about us being chosen in the past and salvation, he's telling the church, he's for you, but he's not about you because he's adopted you, and you're now part of his family and his vision and his hopes and his aspirations. And that's really good news. Secondly, he's not just casting salvation in light of what happened in the past. He's talking about it as well in, in the present. In verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. And then Paul says there's kind of two things about that redemption through his blood. This is language of the Exodus, by the way. This is language of, of the Passover. When, when God came and uh, redeemed or bought Israel back from captivity in Egypt and the, the, the sacrificial lamb was slain and the blood was put upon the doorpost of Israel so that the, the angel of death would pass over those homes and those people would be redeemed or set free or released from their captivity and their bondage and their slavery. That's the language Paul is evoking here to tell the church, like, look, for the Jews in the room especially, we, we've been redeemed, we've been bought, we've been purchased by blood through Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And what that means then is that we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. Not just sins past, sins present, and even sins future. That blood that was shed did something for our state before a holy God to make us clean and acceptable. It's what Hannah talked about a minute ago in our confession. Our sins are cast off as far as the east is from the west. We've been made whiter than snow. We are forgiven in Christ forever. Now, the reason I think Paul makes this point to the church in Ephesus is for them to experience this. That It's not just an idea. It's not just an ethereal concept. 
It's meant to take away your shame and your guilt. Because shame-ridden, guilt-ridden people have a really hard time getting along with one another. We're always going to be comparing ourselves to each other. We're always going to try to see if we measure up, if we got a leg up on the competition. It's going to be really hard for us to sit at a table together and enjoy one another's company if we're, if we're overwhelmed by the sense of indwelling shame and guilt that comes with not feeling like we're actually forgiven of our sins. But if all of it has been forgiven, we can be liberated together. We can experience joy together. We can experience redemption together. We can celebrate one another we can pray for one another. We can walk alongside one another, as Paul's going to tell this church to do in the latter half of this letter. All of that comes out of this truth that we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and our sins are forgiven. And if you doubt that this morning, look at the qualifier that Paul puts on the back end of the forgiveness of our trespasses. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us all, all of us, Jew and Gentile. Those who have horrific pasts, who had committed egregious sins, who, who had no chance at all of being acceptable to God in any way, shape, or form, God accepted them. And to the self-righteous, those who think that they checked every box, they crossed every T and dotted every I and have, a, have the right then to look down their, their nose at Jews and Gentiles around them. No, both of y'all got in by sheer grace. That's why it is by grace we are saved through faith, not by works, so that none of us can boast. And then Paul uses that word lavish. What do you think of when you hear the word lavish? It's a really interesting translation of a word there. It means borderline ostentatious. It's, it's, it's above and beyond. I don't know what you think of, but I think of a hero of mine from my childhood when I hear the word lavish. Ric Flair. If you ever watched pro wrestling, Ric Flair was the definitive example of what lavish means. He, he spent more money on spilt liquor last year than you made. That's what he told us, right? He's the Rolex-wearing, diamond-ring-wearing, kiss-stealing, wheeling-dealing, limousine-riding, jet-flying, woo, son of a gun. And he's having a hard time keeping these alligators down. Like, he was the, the, the example of lavishness. He had stuff on stuff on stuff. And so when Paul uses that word, that's what it evokes for me, just this, this extravagance, this abundance, this elaborateness that, that God has with grace, that he, he loves to pour it out. He loves to, to back up the Brinks truck that he stored up, all of this wealth of grace, and give it to you freely because it's who he is. And I believe this is meant to cause a church to breathe a sigh of, of relief. This is the sort of God that we serve. This is the kind of person Jesus is. This is what the Holy Spirit marks on our souls when he comes to dwell within us. God is over the top with grace. He's ostentatious. And so Paul gives this image to the church so that in the present, they can be a people who feel and experience the liberation that Jesus won for them on the cross. So that their relationships with one another are marked in that direction. The way they see each other and treat each other, love one another. We merely extend to one another what God has given us in the person of Jesus. And it's not just in the past, and it's not just in the future when we get to heaven. Paul says the tense changes here. It goes from past to present. Present tense, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, which God abundantly, lavishly poured out upon us by his grace. That's who we are in him. 
so that we can look towards the future. So that as the people of God, with whatever we're wrestling with right now, with life's difficulties, trivialities, frustrations, whatever's on your plate at this moment, so that we look, all collectively look to an end point in human history where God's going to do something. That's how Paul kind of brings this particular section to a crescendo. In verse 8, which he lavished upon us all in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Here it is, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on the earth. Let's break that down real quick. What does Paul mean by that? All things are going to come together in Jesus. That Jesus' death on the cross, the redemption through his blood, the differences that we have that are reconciled in him, and then the things on the earth and the things in heaven are going to collide at some time in the future. Well, when Paul's talking about the things in heaven, he's talking about those spiritual blessings that I referenced back in verse 3. Those spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. All that God could give, and we're going we're gonna to hopefully do as much justice to that statement as we can next week. All that God could give us that is good, he gave us in Jesus. Now, it's, I think, stored up for us in heaven now, whatever Paul means by that. It's somehow accessible to us to some extent in the here and now, but it is for us an obtained inheritance. Look down at verse 11. In him, we have, in the present, obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So in Christ now, we have every spiritual blessing, and it's a part of an, an inheritance that we currently possess. Now, the way that I would try to make this make sense is just by talking about inheritance language. If, if I get hit by a bus today, my kids get my stuff my wife and my kids, because it's on a legal document that's been signed off by a court of law that says this is the way this is going to work in the event when this dude's a goner, right? But that inheritance is theirs. Now, they have access to it now. Trust me. My daughters did homecoming this weekend. They were tapping into those funds. <laughs> there were things I was paying for, like, it costs that much to get a spray tan? Why is that a thing, you know? They're tapping into the inheritance now, but there is in the future... <laughs> Not much of a windfall, but there's something coming for them. And so that's what Paul is saying for the Christian life. We have some access to heaven in the here and now. We have some access to spiritual blessing in the here and now. We can tap into that alongside one another in the here and now. But one day, one day in the future, the curtain's going to be pulled back. Heaven and earth are going to collide. And a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells and there's no more suffering, sin, shame, or pain. And then we're going to get all the things that God intended for us. Now, that's why Paul says he wants to unite all the things in heaven with all the things in earth. Because, remember, Paul is writing from prison. He's fairly certain, as we know from his letters to Timothy and even the words that he said to the Ephesian elders before he got to Rome, that he's going to die there. He's not petitioning for an early release. He knows the end is near. And yet, a man in that state has the, the wherewithal to write 202 letters in a particular, words in a particular language to a particular people at a particular time to say, it's only going to get better, y'all. He's at the state of abject suffering whenever he, uh, when he erupts in praise. He's so heavenly minded that he's of earthly good. 
He can encourage and, and support a church to be sustained in grace by faith because he is absolutely certain that all things are going to happen according to the counsel of God's will. God predestined him to salvation after all. It wasn't his plan. And if God saved him, then God can bring him safely home. So Paul's conviction erupts here in this idea that one day all of this is going to come to a crescendo and not in a negative way for believers in Jesus and nothing but positive. Richard Koken, in his commentary on Ephesians, summarizes it like this. It's precisely because our God has planned everything and has everything under control that Christians can relax and not worry about the things we don't know and can't control. There's a certain and glorious future awaiting believers. Even as we struggle now with personal failures and addictions or debilitating physical and mental conditions or miserable jobs or unemployment or painful singleness or loveless marriages or divorce or widowhood, whatever we face, Christians can be sure that we already and forever will live in unity under Christ. God, grant us this morning the faith to lay claim to that truth, to look forward to a day when you're going to unite all things in Jesus And all the suffering that we've experienced and all the pain and all the hardship and all the difficulty will one day make sense. It'll be clear. It'll be true that you're you're with us, you're good to us, and you're going to be good to us forever. So God, now by faith, would you sustain us? Would you reinvigorate our imaginations and our hopes? Would you recatalyze our ambitions for the things of your kingdom? Because we know that whatever we brought to the table in light of your grace is just simply small. And Jesus, would you liberate us from the shame and the the guilt that we so often carry with us because you've given us redemption through your blood. You love to lavish grace upon us. Lord, let us run to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.